Welcome back once again to the DRS Zone podcast. It is your host, RJ here. Co-host AMG Dens was away this weekend. He actually had his own karting race, which we are excited to have him on later um, this week with the off week before Imola to chat about his daily racing stories. Uh, But today we are joined by the F1 diplomat. We've referenced him a few different times in different podcasts, Rory, myself, and Dens. Um, He's been someone I've actually connected with on Twitter spaces before. When he is not giving out an occasional hot take, he is a pretty good voice of reason when it comes to F1 Twitter and all things F1 related. Diplomat, thank you so much for coming on. We are so glad to have you here. Hey, thank you uh, again for the opportunity. Good to be here. Yeah, likewise. So I got to ask, you're watching this last Australian Grand Prix stateside as well. I'm going to assume you made it through the whole race. And if you did, did you need any sort of coffee, anything to help keep you up or anything like that? Were you burning the midnight oil? Well, funny enough, I had a can of Red Bull. Um, I actually, (laughs) I went (laughs) go-karting a little bit before uh, just because I wanted to get the blood flowing a little bit and be able to stay up. And uh, this whole weekend, uh, funny enough, we ran a, not a consecutive Twitter space, but every night we started it. Um, For me, the earlier sessions started at like 10 p.m. local time. Um, So we ran the free practice sessions, the free practice three and qualifying, and then the race. And we had a Twitter space and um, some of our friends that we all kind of are mutually connected with on Twitter. They came in and out. Some people that weren't able to actually watch the race, you know, were actually there as well. And they were listening and we were giving out updates every now and then and just kind of giving our, you know, in the moment reactions of what was going on. Um, so plenty, plenty of action. It was awesome to see uh, the, the Grand Prix. Uh, so many people were in attendance in person. Um, reminded me a little bit of how packed uh, Austin was when I went to the race last year. So it was great to see. It looked like a great atmosphere. But yeah, definitely caught the whole race. I did, uh, I think the only time sleep caught me out was uh, free practice too. So that was a later session, but it also wasn't as important. But yeah, stayed up for the race for sure. Nice. Well, glad to hear. Yeah, the I was in that space with you, obviously, in pre-practice one and, and said something that struck a chord with me almost where, you know, you wouldn't have thought earlier in the year you would be up this late at night watching Formula One free practice sessions. But, you know, obviously here we are and there we went. So that, that was really cool to obviously get a group of people in there to watch together. And my biggest takeaway from this weekend is I really feel for the uh, Formula One fans in Australia because what we had to go through for one weekend, they pretty much go through, you know, every other weekend, which yeah, puts for it sure. all perspective in a way. For sure, yeah. for sure. And to me, it's a, it, it, it just goes to speak, uh, just goes to show how, how amazing this season is going to be, uh, how exciting it is, you know. And I think it also shows us harnessing the power of social media and it's a powerful tool when used correctly and by us just having this small group of mutuals that we kind of contribute to this space that we run um you know i always shout out the drs zone podcast um even though you know i'm not one of the 
co-hosts or co-founders or anything because i think it's a great tool to bring people together and uh yeah i mean it's amazing you know we had people from australia join us we had people from europe that were waking up at like 4 a.m and then we were up here in the united states staying up for the for the sessions you know so it's great to see um you know social media in a positive being used in a positive way and and yeah kudos to our aussie friends um I can't imagine going through this for for a majority of the the season. It definitely took a toll on me. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I we could only put ourselves in, in their shoes. At least we get the opportunity to share those moments with with people like that. So that is in some ways kind of priceless. We obviously had the Australian Grand Prix. We have Charles Leclerc on pole position, which I think in some ways may have shocked some other people, thinking we're going to take this race kind of from you know the top and just kind of dissect it all the way down to the bottom. In the beginning here, obviously race start, we had Charles holding on to the lead from Verstappen, um, but we did have Hamilton take a few places up the grid to get into the third with his Mercedes. We had Perez making a pretty good start from third, but finding his way blocked at that first turn, losing momentum and allowing Hamilton to go through also past Lando Norris. And then we had one of the prancing ponies, Carlos Science, uh, having an absolutely awful start with the hard compound tires, dropping down to 14th, um, a five place grid drop. And then eventually um, on lap two, he goes out running wide, trying to pass McSchumacher's Haas for 13th place while spinning into the gravel at turn nine, eventually deploying a safety car. Were you pretty surprised with not seeing Carlos Sainz spin out? Do you think in any way the pressure even after the race with the, with a DNF and even going back to the race before is, you know, should he be feeling the pressure in some ways? I mean, if we're being honest, I think Sainz was feeling the pressure going into this race. And, uh, you know, I don't I don't think he's uh, leaving he, uh, leaving Australia on a good note, in my opinion. I feel for him. You know, I think a lot of the pressure is internal. Um, obviously, we know that he actually beat Leclerc last year on points, and I think that was more due to the consistency. But it looks mm-hmm. like this year, um, they kind of swap roles, Charles and Carlos. It looks like Charles is the one that's more consistent, has that car under him, um, and he's more confident in it. And uh, Carlos seems to be the one that's trying to tame it, you know? And uh, of course, he... The qualifying, you know, I was a little bit on the fence with. Obviously, it wasn't all his fault. Uh, he had a late run in Q3 due to some power-up issues. Um, but, yeah, I mean, not a, not a good start to the race, obviously. And obviously, to walk away with the DNF is, is not good for his contention with Charles. But also, you know, just for him as a person, no one wants the DNF, especially out of a mistake, right? When it, it was within his control versus something like reliability related. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I feel like from the weeks before he had kind of had that head down mentality where it's like, you know, I got to go pretty much get back into the lab. I got a lot of work to do, you know, and you need to take away and, and analyze everything. And then you have it happen a second week in a row. And it's kind of like, well, you know, is that becoming an excuse now or, or kind of, you know, what's going to happen in the, the crazy part to me is being an American sports fan is, you know, how much the pressure can amount in such a small period of time. Um, obviously, because these points are valuable, but, you know, you look at other sports 
in the United States, you know, football, hockey, baseball, whatever else. It's you can really have a few games or, or proverbial races in this case before it doesn't become as much of an issue. But obviously, there's no holding back in racing. So it will be interesting as time goes on, especially now that Ferrari's in the coming weeks going to have more or less a, a home race. Um, if you will, at Imola there to see, you know, how his performance really changes. Fast forwarding past after Carlos obviously went out, got a little bit more racing. Fast forwarding to lap 10 here. Charles now has about a one and a half second lead over Verstappen. Perez does get the job done after lunging past Hamilton at turn three on lap 10 to take third. He's six seconds down roughly on Charles. Um, but we're still not sure if he can be a factor in the race or not. Um, so it's pretty much game on for Red Bull. We fast forward two laps later, Verstappen complains his front left tire is completely grained um, from a lockup that he had on the final set of corners going um, into the main straight there. Um, and then it becomes even more of a headache for Red Bull. Verstappen's dropping ground pretty fast to Charles. The gap's now about six and a half seconds. Um, looks like he's really struggling on the tires, but too early looks like for a one-stop strategy. We have Hamilton sitting back in fourth on lap 17. You know, he's two seconds ahead of George Russell, but we're not really sure what's going to happen strategy-wise. And then we also have the same issue where Norris is running, you know, with Daniel Ricciardo behind him as well. And earlier in the season, last race, we had seen that more or less fighting Esteban Ocon um, also... Uh, with Fernando Alonso. Were you surprised in the earlier kind of mid parts of this race that there wasn't more battling going on between teammates at all, specifically between um, Mercedes and McLaren? No, I I mean, as a fan, you probably want them to because they're so close, but you got to realize, I think this was a turnaround race for McLaren. I mean, the, the car really liked that circuit. And I mean, you know, if you compare it to Bahrain and how they were doing there, I think they were happy to be in the points. And if we look back at McLaren, um, Ricardo was actually told to uh, to stay behind, not put pressure on Norris mm -hmm. because Norris was actually nursing the car at, toward the end of the race. Um, and then Ricardo was like, well, what do I do if he loses power, right? So he, he, they were trying, they were definitely playing that team game. Ricardo wasn't pushing to, to pass him or anything like that. Um, and the Mercedes, I mean, you know, you got to think, uh, and, you know, I'm a George Russell fan, so I'm very happy to see him on the podium. And F1 Twitter kind of went crazy with speculation as to what <laughs> happened between, you know, between him and, and Lewis and was the was the car running hot? Why wasn't George's car running hot and all that? But the reality of it is with the uh, Max DNFing, you know, these are valuable points. And I think to do team orders this early on in the season would just be another hailstorm of negative media, you know, uh, optics that neither team can afford right now, especially Mercedes. Um, so look, it, it's a huge morale boost for the for Mercedes. They got each each driver, Lewis and George, have a podium in in the in, you know in in the third weekend of a 23 uh, race season. So you know that's very very good for Mercedes, considering that they thought that they would always kind of be in that comfortable fifth and sixth, right? So. Um, Again, it, it, it's all about damage limitation at this point. And McLaren, it, it was all about getting that double points. You know, 
as much as we would love to see the teammates racing, I think it's a little too early in the season for that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it too. And I, I think also, you know, with uh, the way the current the current grid lines up, obviously it's going to be a win for both of those teams just going forward, particularly because, you know, Red Bull did show more signs of pace per se than Mercedes did and Ferrari did it, obviously opposed to Mercedes as well. But the interesting takeaway I thought I had from a lot of that testing going with Mercedes as well was I think the Mercedes power unit in some ways is kind of, is kind of underrated. I feel like obviously within qualifying, they're struggling, but during the races, they're, you know, they may lack the pace in some ways, but at least they're being consistent. How do you feel like Mercedes performed during this race in particular? I mean, if the, the speculation with the power unit started back in Jetta, right? So like the, the second week, because um, the first, first race, it's always a fluke. You never really know. Mm -hmm. I still think it's way too early to tell. Obviously, these cars, this new regulation, um, the engine can only do so much because it's very aero heavy, right? So what we're noticing with the Mercedes team is that they're saying, okay, well, the aero is causing drag and drag causes the power unit to, well, not the power unit, but the car to be slower. Even if the power unit's at 100%, you can only go so fast because then you're impeded by, by drag. and. Mm -hmm. We saw what the McLarens that were running comfortably in the bottom five in Bahrain are now, in, you know, five and six uh, in, in Australia. So it tells me that the cars might be performing differently at different types of circuits. And, you know, I still think it's too early to tell, too early to write off one problem. I think most of these teams, I didn't even know Aston Martin was the heaviest car. I thought it was the, the Red Bull and then the Mercedes. and. Mm -hmm. The Aston Martin is actually the heaviest car. So every team here is, it, it, they have their own battle, right? Yeah, you're exactly right on that. You bring up a great point too, going back to the, to the race here really brief, because there's a lot I want to chat about here. So we'll just do a quick summary again. So lap, you eventually have Verstappen pitting on lap 19, about nine seconds behind Charles. Fast forward to lap 24, we get a safety car after um, the Aston Martin actually hits a wall, Vettel's Aston Martin. I know a few people said that that car looked like he was driving a tractor just because of the, the lag time with actually trying to turn some corners there. So that was pretty funny. We go back to lap 30, Perez actually moves back into P4 past Alonso. And now he's setting his sights on George Russell in P3. We eventually keep going forward. On lap 36, going back to Mercedes, Russell is pretty much advised by Mercedes to allow Perez passed for the third spot. Fighting him means, you know, risking damage to his tires. After moaning, more or less, I don't want to hear that, George eventually allows Checo through at turn 11. Perez is now back up in the podium places. And then lap 39, we get Verstappen out. A second did not finish of the season for the third third race of the season. I gotta imagine if you're a Mercedes fan, such as yourself, Diplomat, you couldn't have drawn up a better result in some ways for the weekend. Mercedes scoring in the points and Verstappen not scoring at all. What was your initial reaction when you saw that Max did not finish? It, it's, if you're, if you're a Red Bull fan, it's very troubling to see that, mm -hmm. you know, I think seeing the engine uh not the engine but just the reliability issues it, it's a cause for concern for me um and and i've come up with the theory for mercedes um it, i don't know if you've seen the movie moneyball 
but mm -hmm. you know i always allude to that because that's what they're doing right now they're just they're playing that money ball strategy where they're like okay let's get a few base hits and eventually we'll score run and that's what they're doing their car i think the only inkling of possible reliability issues were the apparently that lewis's car was running a bit hotter um toward the end of the race but you know mercedes haven't had any other reliability concerns at this point in time so yeah i mean look we'll, we we thought it would gonna be five and six we got a podium and fourth it's kind of like a repeat of bahrain except instead of a double red bull dnf it's one ferrari one red bull um yeah i can't i can't be unhappy for that and i'm happy as a george fan that he got his first podium with the team i think it means a lot and it'll boost the morale for everyone on the team and back at the factory right uh, to, to keep mm -hmm. working to solve this problem when you see that that car and they know what it's capable of and, and what it's uh when its limitations are and that they're consistently you know fighting in the points and even sneaking podiums at least in two of the three races you know that has to be great for morale for for the guys working on the on fixing the car and making it unlock its true potential so to speak yeah definitely and the money ball analogy you did you did use was was right on point it comes back to like what you were saying in some ways we don't know the reliability of some of these issues um going on and, and you know anything's going to be a win based on you know how your team starts and how they end up finishing and that goes back to mclaren as well because the week before they're having issues with cooling as well and this race you know with more drs zones you're not breaking nearly as much so brakes are a little less likely to overheat as well going forward more towards the end of the race lap 56 alex albon which is an interesting rule i did not know did you know diplomat that you have to change your tire compounds at least at least one separate time during a race yeah so on a dry race uh you have to change you have to use both or at least one other compound if you're using softs now if it's raining and then it dries out the using whatever wet tire or intermediate tire uh, satisfies that. So you can only use one uh, slick compound, but if it's a dry race, you have to use at least two different ones. And before we go to Albon, uh, during one of the safety cars, I don't remember which one, Stroll actually pitted to mediums, ran them for a lap and then pitted again, still under the safety car back to hards. So he can just go the same. So it was a, there's another little, uh, cheeky strategy right um i know yeah. all the all the focus was on albon but i don't know how many people caught stroll um because i was like why is he pitting again you know everyone was like oh is he retiring and then he went back mm -hmm. on the hards so he satisfied that at least one lap on a new or different uh, compound and then he went back on the hards to finish the race out so but yeah let's go to albon yeah no that's a appreciate the clarification there i really didn't even think that kind of almost overlooked it in some ways but yeah that's that's Really interesting, but we have Albon, obviously he was in seventh, has to pit, finishes 10th. Um, what an incredible drive. Obviously we have Charles Leclerc taking fastest lap and going, finishing P1. After that, we have Perez, Ham Perez, excuse me, Russell, Hamilton, Norris, Ricardo, Ocon, Batas, Gasly, and then Albon to round out the top 10. Um, 
I don't know if we're gonna how much we're gonna be studying Albon's tires, but to have a drive that many laps on that many of tires and really keeping, you know, he's battling cars that are le- legitimately seconds faster than his on worn, hard compound tires. Um, what was your takeaway when you saw the drive that he had? So it's important to remember Albon actually got disqualified from qualifying and then was allowed to enter the race. But that means that he had to enter in P20. So his drive mm-hmm. actually was a P20 to points, um, which is impressive. Yeah. Um, I also think that when you're in that circumstance, uh, you can afford to throw kind of a Hail Mary strategy like Williams did, right? I mean, you have nothing really to lose. So, um, you know, it's very impressive. I think that it's interesting to see it seems like each team or maybe each driver gets along with their car better on a specific type of compound. And Alex's comments after the race said that he was basically treating, you know, some of those laps toward the end, like they were quality laps. And I think that goes to just goes to speak about the versatility of that. Uh, I think it was the C2, the hardest compound. And, um, you know, I mean, yeah. And we saw, I think, even back at Jeddah, Lewis was running really well on the C2, right? He was going, he went for 40 laps and it was still, he was still doing competitive times. And yeah, yeah it, it's, I mean, credit to Albon. He did a great drive. It was a pretty crazy strategy called, but again, when you kind of get allowed to enter the race, but you have to start at the bottom in a, in a car that's, you know, not really midfield contender yet, you're going to, try to pull a strategy like that and it worked for them and it was awesome to see um i don't even think his engineer realized it until they they confirmed on the timing sheets that he actually finished p10 because at first he told him it was p11 you know so <laughs> all in all it's a good good start i think um good way for him to cement himself is probably the stronger driver at that team right now yeah definitely a good surprise from uh from down under there. We obviously went through P1 to P10, talking about more of the winners here. In your opinion, from what you saw at the race, who do you feel like what driver and what teams were the weekend's biggest losers, if there were any? Because I know obviously we talk about the points a lot here, but you know, you have Red Bull obviously not finishing there. I'm just curious to kind of hear what your takeaway on that would be. I mean, you know, I don't think anyone will, will even F1 Twitter will all hold hands and agree um, that I think Aston Martin had a pretty terrible weekend. Um, you know, I mean, multiple crashes and multiple sessions. Huge shout out to their mechanics, uh, able to build those cars back up. But it's just unfortunate that the car looks such a pain to drive. And, you know, um, I think there was a video of Lance Stroll driving the car and just kind of letting go of the wheel and seeing where it goes and it kept going like right and then left and then right and then left right each time he did it which shows that the car had some weird you know balance issues and then Vettel was kind of on the back foot right I mean he didn't get to participate in the first two weekends so he's technically this is his first race weekend in the car trying to figure it out and uh you know it didn't work out for him either but um I think as far as my biggest surprise, because I think Essen was in the on the back foot in the previous mm-hmm. weekends too, but I, I would say my biggest surprise this weekend was Haas. Um, you know, they were, they were kind of toward the back the whole weekend. I th- and I think if you look at the rubber banding that Haas and McLaren, they kind of inverted 
this weekend. And I think that goes to show you that some of these cars and their concepts are more circuit specific without even, I don't even think the engineers realizing it, you know, I think they're learning it as they go because Haas was very strong in Bahrain, whereas McLaren were toward the back and it seemed like they inverted this weekend. That's a, that's a really interesting and great takeaway with that too. And um, obviously being more stateside here in America, I am unofficially official team Haas. So not seeing them score any points was disappointing. I was hopeful Mick might be able to turn something out for his first points, but hopefully next week at, at MLM we'll do it to it. Um, my biggest losers, obviously, um, I, I think you were really spot on with obviously Aston Martin, the, the thought that, you know, Aston Martin could have dropped off to, you know, the season before we're talking about when they were coming out of being racing point and they were going to be, you know, battling for that third or fourth place in the constructors championship, kind of almost with, um, Ferrari and McLaren in some ways. And then they had a really big fall from grace. And right now it looks like that fall from grace hasn't stopped, um, until it's gotten to the back of the grid. So it will be interesting going forward. Do you see just as an F1 fan, um, obviously there's always speculation and stuff like that. If the current car was to continue in the same condition, even on any generalized race, even with Vettel being on the back foot, um, and not truly maybe getting comfortable or figuring out the car. Could you see this being a, his last season, possibly enough one? Well, I don't know um, when his contract ends. I don't know if mm -hmm. it's uh, this year at the end of the season or if it's a plus one. Um, I, I, I can't say it now. If, if he were, able, if he was in the three race weekends, I think I'd have a better idea, but it's so hard to tell um, just because I don't know. We, I don't think he knows how he's getting along with the car. Um, mm -hmm. But the team itself, I think they have uh, some morale issues going on. You know, we've heard and seen articles, and I, I try not to read too much into headlines, and, and especially when it comes from pundits. But, um, you know, we've seen that Otmar Staffsauer, that's why he left, because, you know, apparently Lauren Stroll has a... He likes to have his say and likes to run the team his way and and kind of he takes almost that role of like team owner slash team principal right mm -hmm. um so it'll be interesting to see i think you know momentum is very important in in a in a season uh especially for every team and, and you kind of see that right so it's up to up to Aston Martin to to see how they want to write this ship but i think they have to have a lot of changes and it, it probably doesn't just start with the car. You know, it goes beyond that, in my opinion. Yeah, that's a, I definitely think you're right too. I think unfortunately with a lot of, and I, I don't ask that to, you know, say that it's going to obviously happen or not. And there's a lot of different things that could or couldn't, you know, even look at someone like years ago, Nico Rosberg kind of, you know, in some ways almost retired out of, out of nowhere. So it's obviously always possible, but I think in, as F1, they, there always is kind of those clickbait articles in some way, especially with the driver power rankings, you know, don't even get me started on those. Um, but it, it is something I feel like that has come up and something else that, that has come up that I was very curious to ask you about um, diplomat here is there's this ongoing conversation that, you know, what, Alex Albon just did in this race took George Russell almost three years to get to um, just in the fact of, you know, the 
getting in the points more or less, not necessarily, you know, the struggles of developing the car, um, different circuits, stuff like that. What's your response when you hear people say that, um, you know, in some ways, Albon could be considered better than George uh, on that fact alone, just with Williams. Yeah, I look, uh, F1 Twitter was going crazy over that uh, mm-hmm. after the race. And uh, look, you want to know my thoughts? I think Albon's a good driver. Uh, I think he actually has to be thankful to George for getting him that seat because I think that was uh, the last hurdle was George's uh, kind of persuasiveness right to, to the mm-hmm. Williams people um, but look I, you can't compare the concept of the cars I think the the reality of it is that if, if the if the car from 2021 were still racing and Albon would you know was going to do that I'd also argue that that still wouldn't count because you know George Russell in my opinion uh, developed that car to what it was in 2021 and the fact that you know, uh, um, Williams finished P8 last year, uh, gave him a little bit more money. Um, the new management gave him a lot more resources. And so, you know, they're able to build a car that, that works with Albon's ability. And, you know, I don't want to read too much more into that, right? Um, we could argue that what also took George Russell uh, three years to get a podium, he got in three races with Mercedes, right? So, I mean... Mm-hmm. It, you know, you gotta, you gotta pick. I don't believe in punching down on another driver to make one other driver look better. I think both of them are good. Um, I, I rate George a lot higher though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, again, I think it's one of those things that's just the the hot topic people obviously poke around about. And if you have one team you root for that, that obviously makes the most sense, but uh, I, I definitely do agree with your sentiments about George helping Alex Albon, you know, get that seat. They did have, you know, a past history with, their carding days more or less um and it does obviously strike like they are our friends obviously on the circuit so that can only help and it is good in some ways to obviously see a familiar face back in formula one especially with the pressure that is associated with that red bull seat um as well and that that is a great transition to one of our next segments that we did have reoccurring here called the hot seat cue flamethrower noise do you after this race any driver in particular you have on your proverbial hot seat where it's more or less they literally should be driving to survive to keep their seat in formula one yeah i mean it'd be easy to say latifi right but i think Mm -hmm. that i'm gonna cut him a break and um i'll be honest with you um i don't think that it's necessarily a drive to survive in the sport but okay uh, without criticizing too much, I think Carlos Sainz is definitely in the hot seat right now. Um, mm-hmm. Remember that he's also in the talks of a contract extension, right? And he's pursuing that. Um, he also has a lot of sponsorship that he brings to that Ferrari team that, you know, is probably putting pressure on him to perform as well. And, and I, yeah, I think he's had, uh, you know, e- even if he finished the race in the previous two weekends. He was very much off the pace of Charles in a very similar car. And now that with this DNF, with with the just the start and the way it, this weekend went for him, um, he's definitely going to be feeling the pressure. And again, I don't think it's going to mean he gets kicked off the team or anything. But to me, um, you know, even being voluntold that you're the number two driver before the halfway mark of the season. That's a very high possibility right now. And he, he knows that. So I think 
I think he's definitely in the hot seat right now. Yeah, I could definitely imagine so. Um, obviously, just the historicness around around that team. You did have the concept also of, um, you know, potentially Mick coming in with that with that seat future on. And believe it or not, my hot seat to kind of mirror off of with Ferrari um, in some ways is um, Mick Schumacher. And I don't say that again to be, you know, horribly criticized like he's going to be out of Formula One by the end of this season. But he did have, you know, noticeably better drives last season than um, he who shall not be named Nikita, Nikita Mazepin. Um, and now that K-Mag's in that spot, it's obviously not been as easy for him. Um, he did have the crash last week. Um, you know, he did show some signs of struggling this week, like both Haas's did as well. But that, you know, he more or less in some ways was hopefully being groomed for that Ferrari spot. And Carlos outperforming Charles last year, um, I think surprised a lot of people. And if he can do it this year, you'd assume that that seat might not go to Mick for a while. So um, it will be interesting, obviously, as time goes on to see where both those drivers end up. Um, not to do too much of a quick preview to um, next week at Imola. Have do you have any thoughts? Any thoughts of or predictions for for that race, given that grid at all? Honestly, I I have not even come close to uh, thinking about that. Uh, big <laughs> talks, big talks were about upgrades, and then I I realized actually that it's the first sprint race of the season, mm-hmm. and that means that teams only actually have one free practice session because it goes into a free practice and qualifying on the Friday and then or do they have two free practice I have to remember I think they but again they lose a free practice session somewhere mm-hmm. um, and then they have the sprint so you know a lot of people are saying well are the teams especially Mercedes going to bring a, a big upgrade to Imola and now I'm thinking well will it be in their favor because they they'll have less uh, testing uh, time to mess with the setup and everything like that. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously, Imola being close to it's in Italy, right? Uh, home court mm-hmm. advantage for for Ferrari. It's obviously not Monza, but Imola is actually geographically closer to um, the Ferrari home base. So we're definitely going to see Tafosi both in Imola and and in Monza. And I think home court advantage plays plays a lot morale wise right it puts puts the team and the drivers in a in a good mindset so um yeah i don't know about the other teams yet but uh yeah i I was gonna say quickly on mick schumacher uh, i mean he did finish before kevin right uh only Mm -hmm. by a position Uh, but he also has that reputation of taking a year to get acclimated um same thing happened in f2 and I, I kind of almost want to go out on a limb here and say that like with this new season being a regulation change and a completely new car, it wouldn't surprise me if he takes, uh, you know, a whole other season, AKA 2022 to, to, mm-hmm. to come out swinging in 2023. And, you know, I don't think there's going to be any, any, any pressure for him to rush to get to that Ferrari seat. I think Ferrari are letting him marinate as, as we say, right. And, and kind of letting him grow a bit. So yeah, we'll see. Yeah, no, I think that's a great that's a great way to put it because obviously with these regulation changes, you know, it's gonna be definitely a little bit of a learning curve, and you got a lot more to learn when you're with a car already on the back of the grid, which is enough to say too to you know again that conversation earlier about 
George Russell versus Albon in that in that spot with the Williams Williams too. Um, out of curiosity, though, too, with obviously this race having returned to Australia, um, overall, just as a race, you know, it was great to see fans obviously back. Just from a, a, an actual racing perspective, um, what did you like? Didn't you like? Were there any things where you where you wish were different? You, were you a fan of the, the DRS zones? Do you think Australia should go back to starting off our season there? Because my big thing is I feel like as fans, this was a circuit where, you know, for 22 of the last 24 seasons, um, it had start, we had started the season in Australia. And I think it was more hype around just starting the season rather than actually good racing and kind of just the way people race, people didn't buy too much into it. First race to the season. Now we're changing the track layout. Um, and really seeing what these cars are capable of. Um, any just thoughts in general on on the Australian Grand Prix and, and where you could see it going or not going from here? Yeah, I mean, for me, the the changes in the track, first off, um, I, I think they're interesting. I think they're beneficial. The cars can exploit, you know, top speeds a little bit more. Um, from a fan perspective, I think... Uh, I didn't see too many overtakes in the race, and I think that that seems to be the case, whether it was the, the pre-change or the or the current layout. Um, but obviously, the race was a bit entertaining through just the the safety cars and the strategies and how the teams played that and rolled the dice, right? So we still got you know entertainment, in my opinion. Um, you know, I, I think interestingly enough. It, I don't know. Um, I know the tradition was for it to be a, a, the the season opener. I'm interested to see how it being kind of like the third race or wherever they want to slot it next year. Um, do they do that? Do, where it wasn't the first race because it was like logistically convenient. You know, you, it's the furthest that you'd have to travel, and then after that, you can worry about just going. You know, between Europe, Asia, and and then North America and and South America, like. You know, from what I've known from talking to people that live in Australia, it's like the farthest place to get to, no matter where you're at in the world, right? It's mm -hmm. it's so. I don't know if it, it, like again, I'm not a historian on why it was the opener at all times for for so long, but part of me thinks that it might have been logistics related to, or at least that was a, a underlying benefit, you know, and and it's interesting with the cost cap now i think we already see a few teams asking for a raise in the cost cap due to you know just freight costs and shipping and everything like that so you know maybe they might make it but i have no opinion one way or the other i'm okay with it whether it's the first or the third race yeah yeah well nothing wrong with that i know f1 is as they describe it in many ways is the traveling circus so it, it could have very well been a logistical thing and you know we missed it during COVID, and it was nice to see the um the hype and the fans obviously surrounding it it's going to be even a little bit nicer now that um selfishly we get this back on um our time zone in, in some ways so we're not having to stay up at night sorry australian friends but um it was a cool it was a good race and uh obviously on to Imola next year in two weeks um, before now and then in two weeks. Um, just going to give you a minute here. Um, just in general, anything, any hot takes between now and then anything you think um, fans are overreacting to from a Mercedes perspective, anything just in general, you want to clear the air out while you have one additional platform here tonight. 
Yeah, I, I think the, I mean, you mentioned the Mercedes thing, and I think we see that a lot of the the pundits and the, the commentators, um, they, they, I think they want to see sort of like the infighting between Lewis and George. I, I think uh, the drivers are equally competitive and sort of helping each other get better while working as a team. And, and it's interesting because, you know, you go on Twitter or you click a headline and it's like, George Russell really stuck it to Lewis Hamilton. And it's like, this, you know, really not what happened. The circumstances of the race are what kind of caused that, you know, to go the way it did. I mean, Russell, even in his uh, post-race um, radio he was like you know we got a bit fortunate but that's just how the game is right sometimes you you got to be there to capitalize on that fortune um and, and you know it'll come around for lewis i, I don't think that there's any drama or infighting there um you know i think they're going to work together and i think when they get that car dialed in here's my hot take uh they're the best driver pairing on the grid and if they have a car that can compete and not be a second lap slower than the ferrari um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, that's very, that's a very dangerous driver combo to, to have coming in your rear view mirrors. Well, there you have it. I, I like the hot take. Yeah. I, I think the, the reality of it is what benefits, you know, Lewis and George, I mean, Lewis is obviously, in my opinion, the greatest driver that, you know, sat in a cockpit in an F1 car, um, just because of how he's able to adapt and, and just get himself mentally dialed in in every every um, kind of um, time he's on the back foot so to speak um and then russell obviously i think he's a, a great young talent that i think a lot of people underrate because uh right after f2 well should i say winning f2 in his rookie season you know uh, just like charlotte claire did the year prior uh, he went into a bottom team um, but I think that that was, you know, it's kind of one of those where you like pay your dues a bit, in my opinion. And I think that's a concept that's more familiar here in the States. I don't know how it is internationally, but I, I think that George, his racing IQ kind of only benefited from that because he's learning how to extract the most out of a bad car. And we saw what he was able to do last year, um, you know, especially on a Saturday with with uh, with the Williams and, uh, you know, kind of having that young experience and then Lewis's experience. That's that's such a dangerous pairing because, you know, here's George Russell, someone who has the same junior achievements as Charles Leclerc. And it, again, another hot take. I rate them on par, uh, you know, as far as talent goes. And then you have the greatest of all time in the in the in the car next to him. And that's why I say, you know, that that's such a dangerous pairing because, you know, teams either have one Charles Leclerc or one Max Verstappen and then a consistent second driver. But to have, you know, kind of a Charles Leclerc level talent and then Lewis Hamilton, the greatest of all time, you know, that's just I'm, I'm sitting here waiting, you know, uh, mm -hmm. once that car gets dialed in to me, I don't even think that car needs to be equal on pace, I think. You know, Lewis and George are good for, George, you know, Lewis probably more three to four tenths, you know, when he wants to get that much out of the car. And George, I think he's right there, you know, one one to three tenths uh, on, on, a, on a good day. So, you know, even if they need to extract the mo more out of that car, it just needs to be within half a second. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, a, that's a definitely something interesting to see. 
if and when that how how that plays out towards the uh, the, the rest of the season here, and that will be obviously more more extracted or um, known as time goes on with some of these you know different circuits we see around the grid because um, obviously going forward we're, we're not to my knowledge going to have many other racetracks with the multiple DRS zones like that as well. So you can get speed obviously coming out of hairpins with being a more experienced driver or just knowing the strategy and, and simply being patient. That's going to be a huge win for those guys as well. One last question I have for you, which we ask a lot of our guests here um, on the show as well. We were three races in right now, predictions for who will be world champion the season and who will be constructors champion as well well yeah that's a i guess that's another hot take question we're only three <laughs> races in uh yeah. charles definitely looks really good as far as i think he has more points than the next constructor combined which is mercedes right so single-handedly mm-hmm. um but you know look it's a long season new cars uh and i think every team and every driver has their own uh, battle that they're fighting, right? I mean, we see it with the Red Bulls, we see it with Mercedes, McLaren, and, um, and and I think uh, we might even see it with Ferrari soon enough. You know, I mean, you you put signs, uh, he might want a challenge to prove that he's worthy of that number one spot. Uh, the development war, it can always go on the back foot. You know, not every upgrade uh, will benefit the car and add with the cost cap. And even, you know, come mid-season, um, the the allocation for resources changes to the current standing. So if Ferrari's on top as a constructor, uh, they actually get less time than the other teams, you know. So mm-hmm. the, ben- the benefit that they had from last season goes away. Um, you know, it's, it's all to play for. The development curve is crazy steep right now. Um, I still think Lewis Hamilton is um, meant he he's in that mentality where he's so dialed in and he wants to get that eighth that I wouldn't put it past him. Um, but if you're looking at statistically right now, pen on paper, Charles is obviously running away with it. But again, that's not where I think it's going to go. I think it's going to be the cars are going to converge a little bit, especially toward the summer break. We'll get an idea of where each car is come Barcelona. I think that's going to be a good quarter of a season mark of where the cars are because it's a familiar track and they did free preseason testing on there, right? So we'll be able to see how dialed in they are. But again, mm-hmm. uh, I think that that summer break resource reallocation can play a big role, especially if, you know, cars uh, and reliability comes into the into the mix. So it'll be exciting. I want Hamilton to get his eighth, uh, and I think I want Mercedes to put a fight to the Red Bulls and Ferraris. I want a six-way fight. That'll be, as a fan, nothing better. Yeah, definitely could not ask for much more than that. And that's another great reason why we always obviously have to keep watching. You know, you never know race in and race out um, as time goes on. And it will be more interesting to me to see if this year, if it is that close in um the title fight and even if one other driver ends up getting uh, a race win outside of uh, a red bull ferrari or even a mercedes so thanks again so much diplomat for coming on uh really appreciate it looking forward to having you back yeah no worries uh thanks for having me let's see uh you know after imola we, we can talk about miami since i grew up there so let's uh oh, let's see yes. how that race goes 
most definitely we need definitely need a locals perspective because i gotta imagine the tickets in coda that you went to may have been a little bit cheaper than what we both might be paying in miami local or not <laughs> yeah probably at least a good 10 times cheaper but yeah <laughs> well definitely looking forward to it you take care and we'll talk to you soon well there you have it a lap by lap breakdown of the australian grand prix with f1 diplomat a few hot takes, a few hot seats, some winners, some losers, and a few reasons to watch Imola and Formula One for this upcoming season. I am your host, RJ. Thank you for joining us for, again, this Australian breakdown. We will see you back here sooner or later on the DRS Zone podcast.